5, verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. If I were to ask you this evening, what is the one quality, what's the one characteristic that, ter- that determines whether or not a person has a successful life? We're just talking about gen- general, as far as being a human, being here on this earth. If I'm going to be successful, what's the one quality that I would want to instill and want to train somebody else? Well, you may have already given a hint that it's on there on the screen, but you know what the psychologists thought in the 60s and 70s? They thought that it was intelligence. That if a person is truly intelligent, if they have a high IQ, then that determines that they're going to be successful for the rest of their life. Since the 80s, they have rethought that. And they've rethought that especially to the point where they believe that and are actively teaching that it's really having to do with high self-esteem. You get somebody's self-worth and their self-esteem up high enough that they will take that and say, well, I'm worth something, so therefore I'm going to become productive to society. What's interesting is self-control never really even enters the picture when you talk about whether or not somebody's going to have a successful life. And yet what you're going to find is self-control has more to do with us being successful, not only as people here living on this earth, but especially as the people of God. You know, the Bible tells us that there are a number of places that we need to be self-controlled. But notice some things that some other people have said about self-control before we jump into those. One, of the man's, one man said, if you could bottle up self-control, you would be bottling the most valuable substance on earth. Isn't that true? When you're tempted to reach for those Oreos after bedtime and uh, you want to go and you want to get an extra cup of coffee or something like that, if I could take some liquid self-control at that time, I tell you what, my diet would be a whole lot better and I would probably be better for it. One man said this, Self-control sounds like a lovely idea, something I will definitely get to tomorrow. And that sounds like a whole lot of us. I'm going to spend tomorrow being self-controlled. Augustine prayed this, God grant me chastity and self-control, but not yet. As we enter into the day after tomorrow especially, well tomorrow I guess if you're uh, into eating copious amounts of candy, the day after tomorrow we enter into a season that's marked particularly by unbridled self-control or uh, unbridled uh, self-indulgence, let me say it like that. You realize the average person between the beginning of November and the end of December gains 15 pounds? They put that on based upon the fact that we've got uh, uh, Thanksgiving, a, a, a glutton fest in some respects for a lot of people, followed then immediately by Christmas, which is particularly a materialist fest. And a lot of people lose their self-control and uh, gain self-indulgence or promote self-indulgence during this time of year. So we want to talk about living a life of self-control. A couple of passages for us to think about this evening as we get started. God calls Christians especially to a life of self-control. Remember Paul reasoning with Felix in Acts chapter 24, told him and was visiting with him and reasoned about righteousness, about self-control, and about the judgment to come. Acts chapter 24 and verse 25. 
And as Paul was preaching the gospel and teaching this, this obviously had to do with right living, with mastery of self, and also an, a need or an a, a obligation that we were going to have to stand before God one day. That ought to give us pause to think about as Christians. You remember Paul would say that marriage especially is given to guard self-control. There are people that burn with lust and burn with passion for uh, the opposite sex and they, they, they feel like they're powerless against that. Well, one of the things that God has given for the uh, sake of fulfilling that especially sexual desire in 1 Corinthians 7 is the marriage relationship. And he says that's given there to guard your self-control, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9. The passage Jacob read for us just a few moments ago from the fruit of the Spirit. Notice how it begins with love, but it ends with self-control. And these are evidences that you're following after the right thing. You're following after the Spirit. You're wanting uh, a God to work powerfully in your life, and you're, you're thinking about his commandments. And he says it's going to start with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are all evidences that you're pursuing the right things in your life. And in your course of action. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes to Timothy and tells him, There's coming a time, Timothy. There, we're living in a time, he says, that uh, perilous times are come, will come. He said, You're going to find people that are lovers of self, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unforgiving, unloving, unslanderers, without self control, brutal, and despisers of what's good. That's a mark of people that are completely unrestrained. And Paul says, Timothy, you're living that life. Christian growth is going to be something that absolutely seeks to be more self-controlled. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7. through 7, Peter said, we have to give diligence to add to our faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, perseverance, or knowledge, self-control. And self-control, perseverance. And perseverance, godliness. Godliness, brotherly kindness. And brotherly kindness, love. It's right in there in the mix of everything that our Christian character ought to be as people who are following God and wanting him to change us from the inside out. We ought to be people who are known by self-control. Briefly this evening... Let me give you four words that the Bible uses to talk about self-control. Because folks, we may have defining moments of our character that are given in a mountaintop moment. But what I know is the choices that we make every single day, they are really going to be the fabric that define us as people. That is that the choices that you and I make to indulge or not to indulge, to, to restrain or not to restrain, those things are really going to be the things that form our character and our habits and once those things are cemented in place and once they're forged, it's difficult to change those habits and those character and that character that we've created. Let me give you four words that the Bible uses in a number of different passages to talk about who we ought to be as Christians who are seeking after self-control. Word number one has to do with us being sober in manner of life. Nepho is the Greek word. And what this word has to do with is about especially being sober-minded, free from intoxicants, particularly free from alcohol. And he says you need to be a person who is able to look all around the sphere of life. The Bible would use the word circumspect and say, what are the things that are influ influencing me? What are the things that I can influence? How can I live my life to the glory of God? And how can I, how can I make sure that I'm, I'm guarding that sphere of influence and making sure that I'm watching for those dangers that might come within? 
That's the word nepho, sober and manner of life. Paul, especially to Timothy, in the midst of talking about false teachers and about how people are not going to listen to the gospel, but they're going to want to have teachers that, uh, that itch their ears, that tell them what they want to hear. Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, be watchful in all things. That's this word, nepho. Timothy, you be sober. Timothy, you be careful and you be circumspect about how you live your life. You watch all around you and make sure that, that there's nothing that's going to compromise your integrity as a gospel preacher and integrity as a Christian. You know, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 is an interesting passage. And it's one that we've, we've heard quoted a number of times. Be sober, that's this word. Be vigilant, be watchful. For your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know in the context who he's talking about? He's talking about somebody who's so full of themselves and somebody who's so prideful that they don't realize the dangers that are out there. They're not walking circumspectly. They're not walking with this nepho, this sobriety about them couple of questions for contemplation. Is my purpose as a godly Christian, husband or wife, father or mother, or just simply a godly Christian, is my vision as my purpose, my godly purpose, clear for me? Am I a person who has things, maybe influences, maybe people that cloud that relationship to where I can't think soberly, to where I can't think about the dangers that are coming around me? Am I sober with regard to that? Is there anything that may be keeping me from fully following God? Hebrews writer would say, we lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily trips us up and we run with patience the rate that's set before us, Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. Sometimes it's difficult to evaluate the things that may be tripping us up because we feel like we need those things and God says those things are not helping you to be a more self-controlled person a person who is, in manner of life, sober. Second word this evening, consider, is the word that refers to especially being restrained in manner of words. Being restrained in manner of words. Chalinagogeo. Chalinagogeo. Say that with me, please. Chalinagogeo. Gesundheit, you're welcome. This word is a Greek word that has to do with restraint. It's a word that has to do with restraint. I like those Western movies where a man and a woman perhaps are riding in the stagecoach, usually the protagonist, and all of a sudden something happens. They hit the bump and, oh, no, the stagecoach driver has gone overboard. Is that a term? He's gone overboard. He's, he's no longer in charge. And the horses are spooked and they're starting to go out of control. And you know, the protagonist has to crawl out of the stagecoach and, and crawl up there into the driver's seat. And he has to reach down to where there's, there's galloping horses and he has to grab those reins and pull them back and say, whoa, that's this word. That's this word. It's a vivid picture. And you know what it has to do with? It's only used in the book of James, and it has to do with how we use our tongues, how we use our words. James 1.26 says, The man thinks himself to be religious, but bridles not his tongue. That's this word, chalinagogeo. He doesn't bridle his words, but deceives his own heart. He says, this man's religion is worthless. If we're going to be people that say, yes, I'm religious, yes, I worship God, yes, I'm, I'm a servant of Christ, and we're not going to be people that say, whoa, I don't need to say that. 
He says, your religion is worthless. In a book of practical wisdom for Christianity, James says, we've got to be people that guard our tongues. And in fact, two chapters later in James chapter 3, he's going to say that if you're a person who wants to be a teacher and you're a person that's wanting to be a teacher but you're not going to restrain your tongue, he says, there's coming a stricter judgment for you, James 3 verses 1 and 2. And in fact, in that same context where he talks about that, he's going to say very next breath that if you're not bridling your whole body, you're not bridling your tongue, then you're going to, uh, then you're, or if you're able to bridle your tongue, then you're going to be able to bridle your whole body. And he goes on, he says, if we put the bits in horses' mouth that we may, they may obey us, we can direct them and we can direct these massive animals with just a little thing. That's the same idea as what this word indicates. The question we ask about this for reflection, do my words honor God and people who are created in the image of God? Because in the very same context, James chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, James says, you can't have a spring that gives both fresh water and bitter water that comes out of the same opening. It's all going to be bitter. You know, somebody, you, you try and bless somebody and they know you to be a person that runs down other people. He says, there's no way that you can honor God with that kind of speech. And there's no way that you can get somebody to believe that you're not a bitter person all the way through if you let those things come out of your mouth. There ought to be a time where we say, whoa, I don't need to say that. Whoa, I need to grab onto that tongue and hold on to it. Hold your tongue. Literally and metaphorically. Are there speech patterns that I need to rein in? Maybe it's people that I need to, or I have an opportunity to sit around, and once somebody brings up somebody else, then you know that the gossip is just going to start coming, and it's just going to start rolling, it's going to keep on going, and you know the speech patterns are not going to be anything that honors God or honors people who are made in, God, in the image of God. Are there speech patterns that I have that I need to rein in? Maybe it's profanity. Maybe as a person who used to do those words and used to say those words and they used to just roll off your tongue like some kind of sick poetry. Maybe because you've still got that in you, sometimes it's hard to rein in those words. Are there speech patterns, ways that we talk, ways that we talk about people or talk to people that we really need to think about? That's this word that has to do with being restrained in manner of words. Third word, talking about self-control, is balanced in manner of mind and emotion. Balanced in manner of mind and emotion. Interestingly enough, this is a word that's given in both Timothy's list and Titus's list of the qualifications for elders. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Here's a person who is balanced. You don't have to worry about them being mentally or emotionally unstable. They know the footing that they're on and consider the work of elders and why that's an important thing to have. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the verse 2 things will directly affect the verse 3 things. He's able to teach. He's not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetousness, not covetous. Those attitudes and those aspects come from a thing that says there are certain topics and certain ways that people visit that are just going to get my blood boiling, that are going to cause me to fly off the handle, and that are going to cause me to start thinking and acting in ways that are just out of character and out of conduct for a Christian. 
why this is an important characteristic and quality for elders to have. Because we need to ask the question, what is it that's really going to stir my emotions? And how can I keep that from compromising my godly influence? There's buttons that you have that if somebody were to even get near that button, you just lose it. That you would have a tendency to become unbalanced. You would have a tendency to become a little irate or a little irritated, more than a little irritated. And the question I ask is, what buttons do I have that would, if somebody starts getting near them or even presses them, are really going to cause me to lose my balance as a Christian? And the reason why we ask is because I want to be able to think about everything dispassionately, even those things that I have that I feel like are taboo, that shouldn't be discussed or shouldn't be done. God calls us to a life of balance, emotionally, mentally, so that we can be people who are balanced in manner of mind and manner of emotions. Fourth word the Bible uses to talk about self-control is the word that we commonly think of when we think about self-control. A mastery of body and appetites. Egratia. This is the word that you're going to talk about when you talk about um, Brian Phelps, Olympic swimmer, and the discipline and the regimen that he goes, is it Brian Phelps? No, it's uh, Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps. I knew that didn't sound right coming out of my mouth. Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps going through the discipline to swim his laps every morning and to be able to practice his strokes and do those things and also to refrain from certain things. This is the idea and this is the word that it has to do with being masterful in the mind of your body and your appetites. This is the word that's given in the scripture reading that Jacob read for us just a few moments ago from Galatians 5 verse, 20, uh, 5 verse 23. Christian is going to be master of his mind and his emotions or his body and his appetites. Galatians 5 verse 22, but also Paul talks about the same word in talking about his own Christian race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 24 to 27 Paul says, he who competes for the prize is disciplined in all things. That's the same word that he's going to use. Christians, we're athletes. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. We're people that are striving for a prize. And in doing so, there are some things that we absolutely need to say no to that are not beneficial for us. But there are other things that we absolutely need to say yes to because they're beneficial for us. To help us run effectively putting away certain things, grabbing on to certain things, behaving in certain ways so that self-control can better be seen in us. A couple of questions for application to think about. Is what I'm doing really a good use of my time, of my resources, of my money, or my body? Is what I'm about to watch a good resource of my time, of my mind, of my body, of the way that I have to spend these 24 hours that God has given me today. Will this cause an appetite to reign over me? There's an interesting question to ask. Sometimes, because the food can look so good before us, we can have a tendency to overindulge based upon the fact that our appetites sometimes rule them. That's when we usually have to roll us away from the table or punch another hole in our belt or whatever the case may be. Talking specifically about food, but thinking about this. Will this cause an appetite to rule over me? You know, a lot of men are enslaved to pornography, particularly in that appetite, that sexual appetite is now ruling over their life. 
That's not the, what God calls us to be. He wants us to be people who rule over those appetites. That's this word. Because he knows that that's going to be something that's going to trip us up as being Christians. Last question. Will this surrender my ability to present my instruments as righteousness unto God? Straight out of the text of Romans chapter 6. Listen, when we became Christians, we died to self. And we said, yes, I want to live for righteousness. I want to live for Christ. And the question we have to ask is, every day we take our bodies and say, I want to surrender to Christ and, and his work in me. I want him to mold and shape me from the inside out. And sometimes those appetites can absolutely short-circuit and absolutely sometimes they can blow us off course because we're not masters of them like we ought to be. Christians, God's want us to be self-controlled. And so I find from these four words this summary statement. A person who is self-controlled is sober, they're restrained, they're balanced, and they are mastered. A person who has self-control is sober and restrained, balanced, and mastered. And you may be looking at this saying, Andy, there's not enough time in the day for me to white-knuckle my body and my mind and my heart and my tongue into self-control. And there's not enough time in the day that I can, I can do these things because I'm going to fail miserably. Well, yeah, you probably will. Just being truthful. But the only way that we're ever truly going to be self-controlled has to begin with this. Surrender to God. Surrender to God's work in us. That I'm going to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. And in loving God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, I'm going to surrender to him every day. I'm going to follow him. That means I need to know what he says. I need to know how he wants me to behave. I'm going to obey to him and I'm going to submit and say, God, I know that you know what's best for me. I know that your word is not just there as a rule of don'ts and you're just a divine killjoy, but God, your word is for my good so that you can get me from here to heaven to where I ultimately want to be. And realize that the call of discipleship is absolutely going to go through suffering. Will it hurt when you maybe have to give up that group of friends that are not causing you to speak like you ought to? Yeah, it will. Will it cause some suffering, some damage? Yeah, it probably will. But what is it that you're trying to achieve? I'm here to glorify him, and I know you are too. What about the things that are not helpful for me? Maybe time wasters. Maybe habits and thoughts that are not good for me as far as being a person who's self-control. Am I willing to set those aside and give those up? Because ultimately it's about surrender to God. If I don't start there, I will never be self-mastered the way that God wants me to be. I'm thankful for his grace. And I'm thankful that even though I may fail miserably in any one of those four areas, I'm still trying and I'm still working that I can bring my body under subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. And I hope that you'll keep that in your mind too. The grace of God is there, not so we can abuse it, not so we can misuse it, but so that we can be changed by it and continually go back to it and say, God, I've messed up, I need your grace. And he says, here it is. Here it is. And as I continually seek after those things, I'm going to become like what I worship most. 
what I love most, and that is my Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know him this evening? The only way that you're truly going to be self-mastered is by letting him be your master. And we're going to invite you to have an opportunity to do that this evening. Maybe there's somebody here who's ready to obey the gospel. Maybe there's somebody here who has been failing miserably and needs an encouragement, uh, an arm to hold, a hand to hold, uh, somebody to, to listen to. We'd love to be able to provide that for you this evening as we offer our invitation. Let's stand and sing our invitation song together.